you have your Bibles with me, with you, I have mine with me. Have your Bibles with you, take them out and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Today we're going to see something and hopefully understand a little bit more about inexplicable grace the inexplicable grace of God, because that's all grace that God, the only grace that God has for us is inexplicable. We can't explain God's grace to us. We can't explain God's grace to those around us. We have no idea and ability to sufficiently describe God's inexplicable, amazing, wonderful, awesome grace. Because we absolutely did not deserve it. He did not have to give it. It was of his own free will and volition that he decided before time began to pour out his grace upon us. And that is something that is astonishing and is amazing. And we need to look at it and say, Maybe this morning we should just look at the text and be a little bit taken back by the grace of God in what he is doing and what he has done. And maybe every morning it will help us wake up and look into the mirror and say, wow, the grace of God has been poured out on that individual. You know, as we come to this text, it's set in its context because if you have a text without a context, it's just a pretext to do whatever in the world you want to do. So we want to look at this text in its context. And the context is we're really moving right after the story of the rich young ruler and his interaction with Jesus and then the disciples interact with Jesus after this. And it really comes down to how do we define success? How do you and I define success? If you uh, look at those around us, basically, if you look at uh, success, we're going to say wins and losses. That's success. If you look at churches, it's the size of the church and their impact on their community. That's success. If you look at pastors, it's how many people are flocking to hear him preach? How many podcast listeners does he have? And how many Instagram and Twitter followers can he grab the attention of? You see, we define success in the church, unfortunately, by the same metrics that the world defines success. Bigger is always better. And guys, I've spent about 20 years of my life in Texas. So I understand the concept of bigger is better because in Texas, they think everything in Texas is bigger and therefore everything is better. They're wrong, but that's okay. But we define success as bigger and better, more is greater. In the churches, in the, in the meetings, in the men that I talk to, it's about butts in the pews and dollars in the coffers. That's wrong. It's not it. That's not success. So we have to determine how we're going to define success. But what about your own personal life, my own life? As we look around, what we typically do is we compare ourselves to someone else. We find those individuals that 
are either really successful and we don't match up. And that makes us feel bad when we look that direction. So we find those individuals who, oh, I'm better. I can, I can show you where I'm better than that one. Or, and we begin to compare ourselves. We spent yesterday at a family reunion. And what does family reunions typically tend to be about? As you get together, kind of going back to your 20-year high school reunion, right? Begin to look at each other and compare. The problem with comparing is we fail to compare ourselves to Christ. It's the ultimate comparison for us. And when we compare ourselves to him, we never, ever, ever match up. We fall really, really, really short. But when we compare ourselves to one another, we tend to covet those that we think have more than we have. For pastors, we look at a, a guy in a successful church, successful being. He's having more people walk the aisle. He's having more baptisms. They're building more buildings. They're taking in more dollars. They're expanding by campus after campus after campus, and nothing can slow them down. And we covet what they have. And what I have found is that when we covet something, we lose contentment in what God has blessed us with. And wherever you are in your life and whatever's going on, good, bad, and ugly, and let me promise you that today there is someone out there who has it worse than you have it. And I know that many of you don't have it very good right now. I understand that. But there's somebody who has it worse and so our coveting leads to lack of contentment and our lack of contentment then leads to complaining. Just this vicious cycle of comparing covenant, comparing, coveting, loss of contentment, and then complaining. And when we begin to complain, we begin to stop doing what God has called us to do and asking God to intervene in ways that God has not promised that he will intervene so what I want you to see out of these texts today is that you can't trust your eyes. You can only trust in the inexplicable grace of God. Because you see, if you go back to the rich young ruler, he had it all by the world's standards. And he came to Jesus and he left with absolutely nothing in the kingdom perspective. And remember, if nothing outside of the entire book of Matthew, Matthew lays out for us the kingdom of God in a way that we should be able to comprehend it, understand it, and actually long for it to become the kingdom here on earth. It is about the kingdom. But the rich young ruler left with everything the world had to offer and nothing that the kingdom of God had to offer. But even in that, his disciples come and of course Peter, the spokesman for the group, has to step up and say, look, look at what we've given up. What are we going to get? What are we going to get out of this? Look at what we have given up. You see, he was trusting his eyes to see what the rich young ruler had. And failing to trust in the grace of God for everything that he has. And so we come to the end of that section in chapter 19, verse 30. And he says this, he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And in this section here in chapter 19, this is a promise and a comfort to his disciples. Yes, you have given up much. And I am telling you that in the end... In the eschaton, when you are in, when the kingdom of God has come of it, come fully in all existence and everything else is done, you will have much. 
but it's going to look a little different than it does now. See, the kingdom of God flips things up on its head. But then we come to our text today. And in chapter 19, it was a promise. What you're going to see in chapter 20, verse 16, is that it's a warning. So if you would, take your Bible, stand with me, and let's read the Word of God together. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when eve and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, each of them also received a denarius. And, now, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only an hour? And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, am I doing you wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I, cho what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first, last, and God add his blessing to the inerrant, all-inspired word. Maybe seated. You see, Jesus is answering the question of his disciples, not just directly explaining to them what he does at the end of chapter 19. He's going to tell them a story so that they might learn the lesson and let it sink in and soak in just a little bit. And that promise in verse 30 of chapter 19 begins to be a warning in chapter 20 verse 16 so the last will be first and the first last the story is different than the explanation he's wanting to make sure that they understand all of this and so if you understand this process there's an owner of a vineyard and it is time to harvest and so the owner goes out into the central area of the town where all of the day laborers would have been gathered every morning so that so that masters like him could come could call them out and put them to work this same thing still happens today all around the country. There are places where day laborers gather every day and foremans come in and masters come in and they choose from those day laborers and they call them out. This still happens. This happened when we were living in North Texas. At wheat harvest time in North Texas, you have an influx of people into a very small community, doubling or even tripling its size at certain times. And it is because 
all of those men are going to be hired out as hands to the various workers and crews that come in to harvest because harvest is something that is significant. You're going to spend more time and more money and more labor during the harvest because you need to get it up before it spoils. You need to get it in while it's still good. You need to move it out while you can still gain the most profit from it. So you hire extra hands. Your normal crews don't do this. And so this master goes out just like any other master would. He goes out early in the morning at 6. And then he goes out at 9. And then he comes back at 12. And then he comes back at 3. And then clearly we see that he comes back about 5. Because they would have worked a 12-hour day, 6 to 6, somewhere in that neighborhood. That's the hours that are marked by the, by the text. And so as he does this, he hires those individuals. And so that first group of individuals, he says, okay, let's agree that we're going to pay you the common amount that a day laborer would get for a day laborer's work. We're going to pay you one denarius for your day of work. Oh, absolutely. Glad to have a job. Let me get into the field and do my job and accomplish the task that has been set before me. And all was good. But then the owner of the vineyard goes back later. And what does he do? He's calling out these individuals and he's saying, okay, where were you this morning? Well, there's a couple of things. One, they, they could have been late coming in. They could have been hired out and, and failed at whatever they were supposed to be doing and had to come back. Or they could have been hired out and got to the task and looked at it and said, I can't do that and come back. But typically your most productive, good quality workers would have been the first thing in the morning. And so he, he calls out the next group and the next group. And what he says to them is, hey, if you go out into my field and work, I'm going to treat you right. So just go work and I'll pay you what's right at the end of the day. Well, at the end of the day, what's right to the landowner is to be extremely generous to all of those who came in later. And so he starts with the last that were hired. You see the repetition in the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples? The change in the way that he's doing? Because what it would have been typical would have been for the first ones to come in. They've been working all day. Now let's get them in, let's get them paid, and let's get them home. These other guys clearly didn't have much to do. That's why they were so late getting there. But he changes it, so he brings in the last, and he pays them. And he pays them a full day's wage. I mean, can't, can't you just understand the excitement? Do you see what he just paid those guys? He just gave them a full day's wage. Can you imagine what he's going to do for us who worked all day out in the hot sun bringing in his harvest? Man, we did a spectacular job. Look out there at that field. We did a killer job. Surely to goodness, when he pays us, it is going to be overwhelming in them out. Their celebrations are already planning in their minds. You know how I know? This is what we do, isn't it? When we, we see this, don't jump to, to condemning them. Jump to understanding them because, yeah, I, I counted my chickens before they hatched, right? I was planning my party before I had the money to pay for my party. I was living a life I couldn't because I expected something that wasn't going to happen. But when we look at this, what we understand and we begin to see 
is this is, this is not about business. This is about generosity. This isn't about business. This is about grace. Ken Witten says that this is not about a contract. It's about a covenant. And a covenant is how we came to know God. And it's different than a contract. So we see this landowner. He's not calculating, but he's generous. He's not calculating. He's generous. The landowner hasn't looked and said, okay, now if I cut here and I cut here and I pay these guys this amount and these guys only worked an hour, so I only get a twelfth of a denarius. And really, you know, if, if you're coming in that late of a day, you're not having to go through a school. So a full day's labor, you can't, let's just divide that even less than that. Maybe a twenty-fourth of a denarius. Whatever the least amount I can get away with. That's not what this landowner says. You see, this landowner understands that God has provided much to him. God has given to him over and above everything that he ever will need. And when he comes to paying these guys, he's not pinching pennies. He's not calculating how much his margins will go up if he cuts his labor cost this much. He's calculating how generous he can be, how much glory to God he can bring and how amazing it will be and a blessing it will be to these men who receive, yes, more than they deserved. Brothers and sisters, we do not serve a penny-pinching God. He is not squeezing every single coin to get the most out of it. He has an over and abundance of everything that he needs. He does not need anything from us. As a matter of fact, he has so much that he richly pours it out onto us. God has more than he needs. He's not scrounging up the pennies to take care of something. He's not scrounging it up to do what he has called us to do. He's called us to a revolution in changing the world and he has equipped us for just such a task. We are revolutionaries in a war that we can't even see those that we're fighting against 99% of the time. And we are not ill-equipped for the task. But if you're like me, sometimes you just go around getting beat down. You go around discouraged. You go around wondering what in the world is God really doing? And if you're not like me, you might be like David who wrote some of the Psalms. The Psalms of Lament. He looks up at God and he says, God, where in the world are you? I can't hear your voice. Where did you go? God, I need you to move. I need you to work. A penny-pinching God counts our sins and decides whether or not his son's sacrifice is worth it. But a generous God counts our sins and says, I'll give it all to cover those. He knows everyone and yet he's willing to give everything so that we might understand the grace that he is pouring out onto us. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want you to be afraid of how big your sin is because our God's grace is sufficient to overcome even that. You know, I told the search committee and I, I, I'm not, uh, in, I am 
pretty open with the fact that my life is not always lined up with the Word of God. And what I can tell you is this, is that the skeletons in my closet would scare most of you to death. But my God is sufficient for that. And by His grace, He has moved me beyond that. So this morning, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever thing you're attempting and trying on your own free will and your own power to overcome without the grace and the mercy of God, let me beg you to stop and fall down on your face and surrender your life to him. Let his grace bring forgiveness into your life because that's the only way that it's going to come in the first place. And then you might just experience the joy of God's grace in your own life. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand how wonderful and spectacular that is. I find it entertaining that uh, I was not ready to preach this text this morning, so I, I, Cody sent me his notes. And as I was reading through his notes, it says this, stop praying small prayers. Stop praying small prayers. Why are we still overcome by the enemy? Why are we still defeated in what God has called us to do? Because we're not living in the grace of God and our prayers are too small. And God is answering exactly what we're asking. So we're going to stop for a minute. And this altar is open. Because here's what I know. I know that some of your marriages are on the brink of divorce. I know that some of you are about to hit financial ruins and there's nothing you can do to stop it. If God doesn't interfere, it's not going to change. I know some of you have gone through things over the last year that are absolutely overwhelming to you. I know this church has suffered. I know you have suffered I know that today the lead pastor of our congregation lays in a hospital bed wondering what in the world's going on. Church, when we walk out the doors today, there are thousands of people that we're going to see and interact with. They desperately need to hear Jesus. They desperately need us to take the gospel of God to them. That's what Ephesians tells us. We pray on the armor, not so that we are protected, but so that the gospel goes out. So right now, I'm going to kneel here on this stage and I'm going to pray. This altar is open. I'm not forcing you to come, not manipulating you to come, but if you want to come, because I know some of you desperately need it. Stop praying small prayers and ask God to do great things in your life. Ask the majestic sovereign God of the universe to act like he is the majestic sovereign God of the universe in your life and in the life of this church. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Father, forgive me for not depending upon the sufficiency of your grace and the greatness of your power. 
Father, this morning, as we cling to the truth of your word, allow it to work itself out in our lives. Father, allow us to surrender our own desires. Allow us to surrender our own wants. Father, allow us to surrender everything we have and be pleased with the sufficiency of the grace that you have promised to pour out onto us. Father, I lift up Cody this morning. Heal him. Father, I am praying that your will will be to heal our brother of this ailment and that it will go away forever. I ask boldly at the throne of the sovereign king of the universe because I know you can and because you have called me your child. So as a child, I look up to the eyes of my father and beg that you would act on this. Father, I lift up the marriages in our churches right now. Father, I know that some of them are on the brink of divorce. Father, I know that some of them are just waiting on the right moment and opportunity to end it. Father, bring glory to your name today by reconciling those couples together so that they can thrive in a relationship with you and that they might thrive in a relationship with one another and that you may be made much of. Father, I pray that you would take every excuse that you would take everything away from them that is hindering that from happening, that you would remove it and you would work in whatever way it means necessary to change those things. But I know that some today are on the brink of financial ruin. And Father, yet in the midst of that, they have been faithful to your word and faithful to you and they long to see you intervene in their lives in a way that they desperately cannot. So Father, this church today agrees with them that we want you to move in their lives. Father, overwhelm them. But I pray that in this church that you would bring reconciliation to relationships that have been messed up and skewed and destroyed and wronged. And Father, that any of those that needs convincing that your spirit would convince them. Father, might we take mighty bold steps toward you and toward one another today. Father, if we have offended our brother and sister May they forgive us. May we seek their forgiveness. Father, may we long to be right with one another so that the world knows us only for our love for you and our love for each other. Father, may this church make much of your name. Father, may we make much of who you are. May we grow in our grace to you every single moment. Grow in our understanding of the grace that you have poured out upon us and stop comparing ourselves to anyone else and compare ourselves to Christ and then surrender ourselves so that we might be mightily used by you to accomplish your will and your task and move us in a direction that brings glory and honor to your name and your name alone.
Father, I love you. Father, I know many this morning who love you. We pray in the name of Jesus, that great and mighty name. Amen. See, brothers and sisters, we don't serve a small God. So we need to start asking God for everything we desire. And then we need to live a life that lines our desires up with the will and the way of God. So that when we ask, that we know we are living with him. Because you see, everything that we have, everything that we know, it's not about our merit, it's about grace. You see, that's what the landowner describes and pours out and and just absolutely demonstrates perfectly to us. It's not about the merit of the workers that are there. It's not about the hours that they poured in. It's not about the quality of the job that they did. It's not about how good or bad they were. It was not about merit, but about grace. I praise God that it was about grace and not merit when it came to my life. You see, this is what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not based on anything that we have done. It's not based on anything that we have said or anything that we have earned. The kingdom of God is based on the grace and the mercy and the greatness and the sovereignty of the one true God of the universe. You see, Jesus wants his disciples to understand what the kingdom is going to be like. Because see, I I said this earlier, but Matthew is just laying out an expression of the kingdom of God so that we might gather around it and understand it. When you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, it is an ethic on how to live in and amongst the kingdom of God. Right here, what he's talking about, he's talking about this, this is how things are going to work inside the kingdom of God. And yes, it looks different than what it does when it's worked out in the kingdom of man. But we're not interested in the kingdom of man because we're entering into the kingdom of God. And what we long for is the kingdom of God to be demonstrated and made right here on earth. You see, God didn't send us into the world to blend into the world. He sent us into the world to take over the world and bring the kingdom of God to bear right here, right now. And then like God, we see the landowner. He didn't seek the least. He didn't seek the best, but he sought the least. Because you see, remember what I said when I was telling the story that the scripture tells us. When you go out in the morning early, it's at six o'clock. That's when everybody is gathered. Everyone is there, good, bad, and indifferent. And the landowner just says, hey, come, go into the vineyard and work. When you come back at a later time during the day, there's a reason those guys are still standing there. All right, This, this is like sports in junior high and you're picking teams. Who gets picked first? The best people get picked first. Sorry, that's, that is the way we do life, right? Like it or not. You don't have to like it, but that's what happens. Well, same thing with these day laborers. You're going to come and you're going to look, so good, 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 good. No, no way you can do this. Good, good, nope, nope, good, good. You're calling them out. And so those that are left at the next hour, or those that make the cut at the first hour, And those that are left at the the next time he comes are those who didn't make the cut at any other time. Or maybe they were just too sorry to get up and get to work and be there on time so that they might be chosen. They were really hoping they could go to the central part of the town. Then they could go home and tell their friend, nobody chose me today. 
And we don't know why they weren't picked early in the morning, why they were still there. All they say is no one, no one chose us. And what he says is come. You know, he's not worried about the best. He's worried about bringing people into the vineyard. He's worried about bringing workers in. You see, this reminds us of, of why in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. Because it reminds us of someone named Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, who was Jonathan's son, who was dropped and made crippled. And David, the king, when he became into power, what did he say? He said, you come and sit at my table. You can't do anything for me. You haven't earned this. You don't deserve this. You are the grandson of my enemy. And by all accounts, I should slay you right now. Man, I loved your father. And because of the love I have for him and the grace that I'm pouring, I'm going to pour my grace out on you. You come sit at, not just I'm going to take care of you, no, enter in. Come into the family. Come into the, come into the innermost sanctuary. Come sit down at my table and recline with me. Kind of reminds us of Revelation, doesn't it? Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. If you open up the door, he'll come and, and sit. He'll come in and recline with you. The relationship is not one that is to put us off, but it's one to draw us deeper in. You see, those that are the greatest in the kingdom of God are those that understand grace the most. It's kind of like the, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 7 where you have two debtors and one is forgiven much and one is forgiven little. And then he asks the question, which one of those understands grace more? Which one of those is more excited about the forgiveness that he gets? Well, the one that's forgiven the most. When I look at my sin, I think, God, thank you for, giving all, for forgiving me of all of that. It's sufficient. His grace is sufficient. But unfortunately, when, uh, when they see this, those who came early, understanding and seeing what the master had done, they, they put expectations on this situation that they were going to be compensated greater than they were expected to be compensated. And so when they, they come to this point, and he only gives them a denarius, do you not see all the work I did for you? You not see all the things that I did in your name? Do you not see all the great things that I accomplished because you brought me out early and I worked hard and faithful all day? You see, I think some of us believe that if we come to faith in Jesus Christ as a child, that, that brings more merit into our life than if we come to Christ on our deathbed. It doesn't. God's grace is sufficient for both individuals to draw them deep into a relationship with him that's going to last for eternity. But these men come and they're begrudging. It's, he, the lander says, Look, am I not okay to do with my belongings as I choose to do with them? God's looking at us and saying, am I not okay to give my grace and pour out my mercy and bring faith in the hearts of whoever I might choose? And we like to, we like to lose it and think, there's no way I would believe that. But who are you unwilling to go share the gospel with? Do you believe that the gentleman from Uzbekistan who ran his truck into a biker trail and killed multiple people deserves to hear the gospel of God? 
or simply give him a death sentence? Do you believe that the lost and dying who don't look, act, and sound like you deserve the grace and mercy and peace of God? If you do, then you, and I'm going to say this, if you really believe it, then where are you demonstrating that belief? Because if you're not taking the gospel out of right here into this community and into other communities where people don't look and act and sound like you, and that can be West Anniston or West Africa, doesn't matter to me then you really don't believe that this is true. You really believe that I've been here and I've been working and I've been serving in the church and if they don't get it, they don't get it. We've got to move past that and move into a deep longing for every single individual to hear the truth. You see, in some ways, we allow jealousy to interfere. We allow our evil thoughts of someone to interfere. We look at them and, and we don't think they're deserving enough to hear the gospel. And that's really why we don't take the gospel to someone. They don't deserve to hear. Now we might, good Southern Baptist, you're never gonna say that out loud. I know that. Now there's some bad Southern Baptists and I've heard them say as much out loud. But our actions are going to determine what's really in our heart because that's what's going to come out. Just like our words are an overflow of our heart, our actions are an overflow of our heart. And a heart that is in love with God and understanding the grace of God is going to overflow to those around us and we're going to do everything we can so that they might know the grace and the mercy and the peace of God. You see, all of this is about perspective. We have a perspective from our vantage point. And we think the world operates and functions in this way. And we think that because we want this, this, and this, that everyone else should want this, this, and this. I see this really when it comes to missions. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. When we, were, when, uh, we were serving in North Texas and we were working in Namibia, and we would come home and we would share about the trips that God had taken, taken us on and what God was doing in the places where we were working. And we would show pictures of individuals. We'd show pictures of children and moms and dads and people on the streets. We'd, we'd let people see these individuals, let them see those faces. And I had a gentleman come to me, he said, can you take some pictures where they don't look so happy? Because you see, if they're sad People be willing to give and to go more. We well, see they had a different perspective than he had. They had a contentment about them that didn't need all of the things that we have. They had a contentment about them that was trusting in God who had been providing and they believed was going to continue providing everything they needed. Their contentment was there because of the grace of God. You know, and then we look around. And as I said earlier, we look around, we begin to compare ourselves. And as we begin to compare ourselves, we covet. And as we covet, 
our contentment goes away. And as our contentment goes away, we begin to complain and let others know of our discontentment. It's jealousy. It's wanting what someone else has when God has not decided to give that to us. Now I believe in big, bold prayers. And I believe in a sovereign, big God who's able and more than able to answer every single one of them. But stop looking around at what God has given to everyone else. And look at what God has blessed you with. And maybe, just maybe, those things that we are jealous about that bring discontentment and complaining and grumbling into our lives, they might bring joy, they might bring excitement, they might bring happiness. What would it be like to see the terrorist come to faith in Christ? Oh my goodness, and then we'd have to look at him and call him brother and know that one day he was going to be of the many tongues and tribes and nations standing before the throne room of God and declaring the greatness and the glory of the almighty God for the rest of eternity. Could you take that? Brothers and sisters, if you can't take that, you can't take the word of God. So let's take our evil thoughts and let's take our jealousy and let's let God transform them and change them into the things that are the very source of our joy. Let God use them to transform us into his likeness. You see, God lays out what the kingdom is. He says, my grace is sufficient to bring you into the kingdom. My grace is sufficient to hold you in the kingdom. My grace is sufficient so that you will enjoy and love being in the midst of the kingdom. What about you? Have you ever accepted the grace of God into your life in a way that's brought contentment, that's brought completeness through the gospel of God for eternity? Have you ever come to that point in your life where you surrendered everything and relied only on the grace of God, knowing that your merits were not good enough to get anything from God? It was all grace. Or maybe you have and we've forgotten. Maybe we've, we've looked around at the world, what the world has. We begin to want it. It's not for us, believers. It's not for you, disciples of Christ. Let God bless you with what God desires to bless you with and see those blessings as his grace being faithfully poured out on you. And we give our invitation in just a moment. As God stirs in your heart, you respond. If he's calling you to, to experience the grace of God for the very first time, then come. If he's calling you to experience a renewal of his grace in your life, then come. If you've been reminded of the grace of God and just want to come and praise him for what he has done for you, then come. Respond as the Spirit leads you. Let us pray.